Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today is episode 96, and we're going to be interviewing Sarah S. How are you doing, Sarah? How's everything this afternoon? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's not not too sunny here in Minnesota, so but <laughs> not too sunny. Is it raining? Um, it's tornado like weather, so a little little bummed out today, but all right. So let's get the party started here and dive in. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. So my childhood started out normal. Um, I have two parents who are recovering addicts and alcoholics. When I was born, they were both sober. I have three sisters. Uh, two sisters are older than me, one sister much older than me, and then a younger sister as well. When I was five, my mom relapsed and landed herself a 15-year prison sentence. Um, so that changed um, for using. So we had a foster brother at the time, and my mom had relapsed with my foster brother. So she got some uh, additional punishments for, for that. Um, so she served uh, seven of those 15 years. Um, so she was gone from when I was five till the time I was 12, which kind of changed life dramatically for me um, growing up then without a mom. And my oldest sister was in the grips of her addiction at that time as well. Um, so she's 15 years older than me. Um, she was in and out of treatment centers. Um, in the depths of her addiction when my mom went away, which left my dad with um, three very young children by himself. And he did the best he could and managed to stay sober through that. Um, when my mom came home from prison is really when my addiction um, took off. So I, I don't remember my first use. I don't remember my first drug. Um, I'm not sure if that comes with more time or if that's just something I'm just not going to remember. But, um, by the time I was a freshman in high school, I was a daily IV meth user. Um, meth was my first drug of choice at that time. So I had dropped out of school, um, went through several different treatment centers at that time and had, had no desire to be sober. I had a really, you don't remember what age you first started? I I believe I was 12. I I think it was either the year that my mom came home or the or it was within the first year that my mom was home. So she came home in August. Um I turned 12 in January. She came home that August. So sometime that year I believe was my first use. I remember one of my first times drinking um my dad went on a skiing trip and I had went with my sister to her friend's house for the week um, to stay with them. And I remember their parents had alcohol and I had took a bottle of alcohol home, but I don't remember, I don't remember the drunk. I don't remember, I don't remember the entire situation. I just remember seeking it out. Um, growing up, my dad would always go to AA meetings and NA meetings and um, because he had three small children, we kind of just went along with him. So I kind of grew up in the back of an Alano club and 
listening to meetings at a young age as somebody who felt like life was against them, what I got out of those meetings is that drugs and alcohol would take the pain away. Um, so, you know, sometimes I hear people describe, well, we didn't set out to be addicts and alcoholics, but I kind of did. I, I didn't want to feel the way that I was feeling anymore. I knew that drugs and alcohol would make me not feel that way. So I was kind of on a mission at an early age to, to find them. So Al-Anon didn't scare you at all. It did the opposite. Right. It wasn't Al-Anon. It was AA. It was AA. Yeah. AA and NA meetings. Yeah. Didn't, didn't scare me. It had a opposite effect. <laughs> it made it, it made it attractive in the way that I, I didn't want to feel what I was feeling anymore. So what was life like at school, like, you know, as far as your social life? School was always very difficult for me. Um, because of the crimes my mom committed, a letter went out to our neighborhood. I was bullied pretty badly. Um, what do you mean a letter? What kind of letter went out to the neighborhood? Um, because today my mom's a registered sex offender. So uh, a letter that that was her address that she was living in the neighborhood, a detailed account of the crimes she committed, um, went out to to all of our neighbors. I come from a really small town in Wisconsin, so um, people knew who we were, knew our name, uh, at very small school. And that was uh, the year that I started kindergarten. So my earliest memories are really being bullied um, for having a mom that was incarcerated and a dad that was recovering. And my dad today has 30 some years and I'm, I'm 29. So he's been sober my whole life, but just the stigma around somebody in recovery in general um, was something I've always dealt with in school. I was very aggressive as a child, very aggressive in school. I got um, my first time being suspended. I was in kindergarten for ripping down popcorn strings on trees that other classes had put up for the birds. So I never really fit in. Um, I didn't have a strong friend group. I always felt like an outsider. Um, I had to go through a special program for kids that were more aggressive. And that was apparent to other classmates as well. So I was bullied pretty heavily for that. And that kind of continued even after my mom came home. Um, it got even more difficult. My mom, when she was on probation and we have a good relationship today, today, I love my mom to death, but we, at that time, um, she was on probation for an additional 10 years when she was released from prison and she wasn't able to be a lot around anybody under the age of 18. So we couldn't have friends over. She couldn't come to our school functions. We couldn't go to the library, the public pool, things like that were no longer an option. One thing I remember significantly is we had to turn off all of our lights on Halloween. We couldn't go trick-or-treating anymore because uh, it was against my mom's probation. Even us as kids, we couldn't go without my mom. Everybody had to be home and we had to be in the basement with the lights off. So it really changed um, the way that I grew up and, and made me a little different than um, an experience that I would have liked to have. But school was always difficult. I stopped going to school uh, my freshman year of high school. So you dropped out. I did, but then I did go back and complete a basic skills diploma. Um, when I was 17 years old, I was pregnant. I completed a basic skills diploma, which is uh, like a step under a GED. And then actually on Saturday, I graduated with my bachelor's. So that was exciting. Wow, that's great. 
went all the way through college. Yeah, uh, took took a long break to do some heavy drugging, and then <laughs> once I got sober, decided to go back and and get a a real degree, a college degree, and I start grad school this summer. So I have a little break, but what did you major in? My degree, I have a bachelor's in psychology and ethnic studies with a focus on Black studies and Indigenous studies. And then um, my grad school program is for my master's in social work. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely the promises coming true in my life. Yeah, good for you. So it sounds like growing up, you had a rough social life. What was yeah. your, did you have any saving grace or was anything that anything you can do to relieve yourself of what was going on around you? No, I guess beside, until I found drugs and alcohol, no, I just was really angry a lot. Um, my dad had attempted to put me in different types of therapy and things like that, but I was just not a willing participant. I was a very angry kid, angry teenager. I did get pretty close to our nanny that we had um, when my mom was incarcerated. We had this lady from our church who nannied me and my sisters. Um, and then the year after my mom came home, she passed away from cancer, which just made me even more angry. I didn't have the ability to let go or to process emotions. And um, at the beginning of high school, when my drug use got pretty bad, I just wanted to disappear. You know, people, I, I work in AA program and the, in the big book, it talks about, um, you know, the feeling of I had arrived after that first drink, feeling mm -hmm. like oh. you're, you know, you're this big person now and you don't have any of these worries, but that wasn't my experience. My experience, I had that feeling when I started going to meetings, when I got into recovery that I had arrived feeling. But my experience with drugs and alcohol was that I wanted to disappear. I, I wanted to just be a fly on the wall. I didn't want to have emotions or deal with anything and drugs and alcohol allowed me to do that. Um, so it didn't make me more social or anything like that. It really just made me isolate. And that's exactly what I wanted. So you like isolation? I did, yeah, for a long time. <laughs> so... Did you have any friends that you were able to talk to about the stuff you were going through? Because, I mean, it says you had a rough social life and it's like that. Was there anybody? Did you have any childhood friends? Um, no, not besides my nanny, who was Dana. I enjoyed talking to adults more than I did to kids. Okay. Um, I had a really hard time making friends. I didn't, I didn't really have friends. I had some friends through high school. I had different using friends, um, you know, but those weren't good friendships. And I have had one friend who's been my friend um, since childhood. And we grew apart pretty drastically when I did start using pretty heavily. And but today we're good friends. That's good. It's good to have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you started using around 12. Who, who did you first use with? I don't remember for sure. I believe my first use was alcohol. Um, shortly after that came meth, though. I know when when my mom relapsed, um, she weed was involved, and so in my mind, I was like, I'm I don't want to smoke weed because that's what my mom went to prison for. So meth was a better a better option in <laughs> in my mind and um 
I didn't know what it was. I remember not knowing what it was. I was at, I was at a friend's house um, who was kind of a, a loner kid like me. So we kind of got along um, better than others, but her, she had an older brother and her older brother um, smoked meth. And when we were at her house one time, he asked me if I wanted to do it, but I don't, that wasn't my first experience with, with using. So I'm not sure what happened in between like the drink when my dad went on a skiing trip and smoking meth with my friend's brother, but it was like instant. I don't want to do anything else anymore. Meth was your meth is where you felt you had arrived. Yeah. Yeah. Smoking meth in my friend's basement at 13 years old, the summer before high school is that was my, <laughs> yeah. That was your moment. Yeah. And it, it was, I mean, I took off running, so it was only less than a year by the time I had, um, reached daily IV use from my first time smoking meth. And then, um, a few months into my freshman year in high school, I got arrested for the first time and I was, um, they had brought the drugs drug dogs into the school. I had drugs in my locker. I was arrested for breaking and entering into a, um, a house that was just built that was like right off the high school parking lot. So me and a couple friends had broken to this house. It was for sale at the time um, to use during lunch period. And someone had, had told the principal about it. So we got arrested. Um, my locker was searched. I spent a couple nights in a juvenile detention center. Um, and then I spent the next like eight years on probation because uh, I kept getting in trouble, kept getting in trouble, and they just kind of kept extending my probation. Um, I was court ordered to go to treatment at 15, and uh, I went to a residential treatment center in Chicago because of my violent history. I was well, denied. I was going to. I was going to ask, what kind of trouble were you getting? Um, just all types of trouble. So I was arrested for several disorderly conducts. I was arrested for a battery, um, vandalism, destruction of property, uh, just very aggressive. I when you know, when I tell my story, I'll tell people like meth was my first drug of choice. Later it turned to heroin, but really anger was anger and rage came, came much before the drugs. So that, that got me in, um, just as much trouble really yeah that could be a, a poison yeah exactly and it and it's you know for me anger and that rage is really just as addicting like I once I started I, I could not stop same with drugs and alcohol yeah I guess I can I can appreciate that because I have I have definitely my anger issues but I don't know if I would consider it a high so it's interesting for you yeah Maybe not a high in the good sense, but probably like towards the end of my using when it's like, oh, I just don't want to do this anymore. Why did I do this? Why am I acting like this? But yeah. So, what was your your drug like? Uh, your drug use like? Were you did it progress slowly or was it? I think you actually said it was just right, right yeah. to the big stuff. I, so you went from smoking to IV use. What within a month? Yeah, probably within a, within a couple months. Um, I remember I had went to another party with that same friend's older brother and him and his friends were using IV and he asked me, he did it for me the first several times. 
and it's well it's completely different it's a different high it's a different um different feeling and it's much more intense so I like that and I didn't I didn't have any sort of um remorse like I didn't I just didn't care I I didn't care what was going on what was happening I just didn't want to feel anymore it sucks as far as having to just feel that way I know the feeling just yeah. being, being in pain and just saying give me anything that will make it go away yeah absolutely it didn't care whatever someone had I'm like let's let's do that because I just I couldn't handle my mom, you know, I couldn't handle the pain of, of not having a mom growing up. I couldn't handle the pain of uh, being bullied and things like that. Um, when I was 14, I was sexually assaulted. So that fueled a lot of my drug use as well. Um, what, happened? what happened there? Um, I, so this was, I had already started, this was probably during the time, like moving from smoking to daily IV use at a party um, and I was raped at a party. And also I was arrested maybe about a week prior to that incident. Um, I was arrested for, uh, I had already been arrested several times. So maybe like the fifth time I was arrested was a week before, a week before I was sexually assaulted. And so to go down, my friend went with me to go down to the police station and make a report and, and nothing happened. Um, so I was very, I'm very angry about that as well. And it's somebody that I had grown up with. So somebody that I knew um, and had to continue going to school with. That must be a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. So drugs, uh, I didn't have to, I didn't have to deal with it as long as I was high. I didn't have to deal with anything as long as I was high. So I just wanted to keep, keep using. And it was zero to a hundred in seconds. Uh, my life took off. I completely went off the rails uh, very quickly. Were you using during school? Yeah. And I was only in school for a couple months. Um, when I got into high school, I only lasted a few months and that's when I got, um, yeah, arrested multiple times and court ordered to treatment and I was expelled from the high school. I refused to go to any other school. I hadn't dropped out yet. Um, I was court ordered to a, a residential treatment program. So I had to, and again, because I had a violent criminal history, I wasn't able, I wasn't accepted at a lot of like local treatment centers where adolescents would normally go in my area. Um, so my, my mom actually found one that would accept me, this residential treatment program in, in Chicago. And I was there for nine months um, on like a dual diagnosis um, track. But I, I had no, no desire to be sober. I didn't want to be sober. I tried to run away. I was arrested what, while I was there. What else do you um, have as far as your dual diagnosis? Um, well, at that time I was diagnosed bipolar. Um, I'm not bipolar. I've been undiagnosed bipolar, but I was diagnosed bipolar because I was very suicidal. Um, I attempted to commit suicide several times in my teen years. I spent months in different psych wards as well as treatment centers. Um, so really like the accurate diagnosis is depression and anxiety. But at the time they were diagnosing me bipolar, I was, I was using. 
So certainly somebody using meth and heroin has symptoms of bipolar. Mood swings and, down. Yeah. Same thing with heroin. You're up and you're up and when you're not on it, you're down. Yeah. So how, how do you find, how do you, do you find it extremely difficult to handle both at once? Um, mental illness and addiction? Yeah. No, I find it easier to handle both at the same time because for most of my life, um, up until the last three years, only one was being treated. So I either wasn't focusing on recovery and would just try and get like my depression and anxiety symptoms under control, or I would be focused on um, my addiction and not treat my mental illness. And, and neither way was successful. You know, if I'm only focusing on the depression and the anxiety, my addiction wasn't, I wasn't sober. I wasn't, um, I have to be able to treat both at the same time in order to like live a full life. Absolutely. To be, to have, to be a well-rounded individual, you need that. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your employment like? Did you, when did, because I guess you needed the fuel, or I'm sorry, not fuel, you needed the money to help stay up with your addiction. Where'd you get money from? Yeah, when I was, um, I'm not sure how old I was, but I started working really early, as early as I could. So I think I was maybe 14. Um, I worked at McDonald's and for minimum wage, which at that time was like $6 an hour or something like that. Um, but really, I just hung out with guys who wanted to um, give me free drugs. Eventually, when I got older, when I was like 18, 19, 20, 21, I started having sex for drugs and doing those types of risky behaviors so that I didn't have to pay for drugs. Um, and all throughout my use, I would steal. So I, at when I got um, expelled from high school, I had to leave my parents' house. So I wasn't able to stay there anymore. I got kicked out of their house, um, but I would break back in and I would steal from them. My older sister, um, she would bartend and waitress. So she always had cash on her. I would go to her house, steal her money. I'd steal from my friends' parents. I mean, it didn't matter. I, at, when I was 18, I um, was charged with fraud and identity theft because I used to steal people's checkbooks and I would write checks out to cash and cash them um, to go spend money on drugs. I didn't start like an actual employment history until I was uh, probably 22. And I would have periods of sobriety. I mean, I was court ordered to, to meetings since I was 15 years old. And I would, I call it the one, two step. Like I'd stay for 30, 60 days and then I would leave. And I'd come back and stay for 30 or 60 days um, uh, sobriety, get 30 or 60 days of sobriety and then leave again. So I, I wasn't always using but for the majority of the time I was never serious about recovery until um three years ago but when I got pregnant with my daughter I decided that's when I went and got my basic skills diploma and then I went to a trade school to be a pharmacy technician so from that point on I had always worked in in healthcare. um but in 2018 I was a chemotherapy technician and I was using very heavily at work this was after uh, about a year of sobriety. I, in 2016, I went to treatment 
um, because CPS had, had taken my daughter away. So I had a complete treatment. I went to treatment. I got kicked out of treatment for being violent. And then I went to a new treatment that I completed. What happened that you were violent? I decided that I wanted to quit smoking cigarettes at the same time that I was in treatment. Not advised. It's not a smart move to make. No, do- I, I actually said that when I was on the way into rehab, like there's a guy who calls you first. like yeah. And I yeah. said to him, you know, I'm thinking about just quitting everything. And he goes, no, if you smoke, bring your cigarettes. <laughs> That's yeah. It he was like, not a smart yeah, idea. He's like, you'll regret that. <laughs> not advised. So anybody, if that's that, yeah, don't do that. So I decided, yeah, I was going to quit smoking. I had been there for a couple weeks already. And we had, they had like our wallets and things locked up. They would go to the store for us once a week. Yeah. Um, same thing here. Same thing here. <laughs> So you could put your, you know, your ordering for your cigarettes and whatever else you needed or wanted. Um, and I, I was like, okay, once this pack is done, I'm, I'm done smoking cigarettes. And uh, that lasted maybe 12 hours that I was out of cigarettes and the store was run wasn't for another several days. And my roommate's boyfriend was coming to visit that day for visitation. So I wanted, I wanted my wallet to be able to give him money so that he could bring me cigarettes. And they didn't, they wouldn't give me my wallet. They tell me, I, you know, you have to wait. That's not, we, you're not going to give him money. You have to wait until the, until the store run. So I jumped over the counter and I hit the staff member to go get my, oh, no, <laughs> to no. go get my wallet. And I was escorted out in handcuffs. And because I have a hard time accepting life on life's terms, when I get angry, I, I can't, I just get the, the efforts, you know, like screw everything. So they brought me to my room in handcuffs and they're like, pack your things. You're, you're not going to get arrested, but we're going to, we're going to take you and, and drop you off at this truck stop. I was in treatment in like this super rural town in Minnesota, uh, several hours away from where I live. And I was like, I don't need any of my things. I don't want any, I'm not packing anything up. So then they took me, they did take me and drop me off at a truck stop, but I left all of my stuff. <laughs> And it's like, who, you know, my whole life, it's like, who are you hurting? The only person you're hurting is yourself by doing that. So, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but it's I, so funny because at the time you're probably like, I'll show them. Right. At the time I'm like, you, yeah, exactly. I'll show you. I'm not packing any of my stuff to take with me. I'm leaving all of my things that I own right here. So then I'm, I have nowhere to live. I don't have my children. I can't get my children back because I didn't complete the CPS treatment. And I'm four hours away from home at a truck stop with not even a phone charger. So that, yeah, it was <laughs> not a, not yeah, a situation. Yeah, not, not my smartest move. Uh, I hitchhiked for, well, I hitchhiked about half the way home. And then my friend had come in and picked me up from there. Um, and I couch surfed at different friends' houses for the next several weeks until I could find a treatment center that would take me because I had to complete inpatient in order for because of the cps ruling and that that didn't count because i didn't complete it i was kicked out so i found another place and and eventually got back in and did uh the 28 days and i stayed sober for about 13 months after that and but i didn't actually do the work like i you know i i hate the saying fake it till you make it because i faked it for so long that that was the only thing that i knew how to do I didn't know how to actually do the actions and make the changes. And I really just, I worked two full-time jobs and I thought that if I just kept busy that I wouldn't use, I did go to meetings and I I worked some of the steps, some, 
of the steps and it didn't work. And after, after a year of doing that, I was just white knuckling it so bad. I had tried to get my daughter back and I was, I was denied. And my daughter was um, taken under a chapter 54 guardianship in Wisconsin and it's permanent. So a chapter 54 guardianship is permanent. So my, she was permanently removed from my care and um, guardianship was given to my sister and my brother-in-law. So I had filed a motion with the court to get her back. I had a little over a year of sobriety, but I didn't do all of the things that CPS wanted me to do. The CPS case was closed because it ended in the guardianship. Um, so it was like I was petitioning the court to end the guardianship so that I could have her back. And I, I got denied. They were like, no, this is, you've shown that you can't be a stable parent. So you're not, it doesn't matter how much sobriety you have. We're not going to end the guardianship. Um, so then I was like, well, then there's no reason to be sober. <laughs> oh, you know? boy. Yeah. And that was like my green light to use as fast and as hard as, as I could. And, um, and that's what I did. I got really close with my uncle too. I have an uncle um, who moved to the Midwest from the East coast uh, sh shortly after my parents did. So I grew up with him and um he passed in 2017, right before I relapsed. So with, with him being gone, and I lived with him all throughout, all throughout high school. When I, when I got kicked out of my parents' house, I would go stay with him. Um, so I stayed with him for about seven years. And I stayed, me and my daughter stayed with him when she was born too, because I didn't have anywhere else to go. And he was a very big part of my life. So when he passed, and then not getting custody of my daughter, I was like, I don't have anything to live for currently. Um, so my plan was to use until I died and I didn't think I would make it very far. And I had an apartment in River Falls, Wisconsin, and I would sleep in my car because and at this time I'm using heroin much more heavily than meth. I used the meth so that I wouldn't sleep too long on the heroin, but I had an apartment and I would sleep outside in my car because I figured if I died, which was the goal, I would much rather have somebody find me um, so that my, you know, my mom didn't have to come in and find me in my apartment dead. So if I, if I use in my car, I overdose in my car, someone on the street will see me so that my mom wouldn't be the one to find me dead. It's like, that's my messed up, my crazy addict thinking. It's, it's funny you're saying to yourself, you know, by doing it, there's a huge chance you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's do, what and I still wanted. do it. Right. That's I've, I couldn't pull the trigger there. You know, I wasn't going to be able to commit suicide any other way. And I'm like, if I, if I use enough, I'll just, I, I, one day I won't wake up. And that, that was the goal. And, you know, some people get sober because they realize it's life or death and that if they don't stop, they would die. Um, which it, if that's what gets people, you know, to where they need to be, then that's great. But m my experience, I wanted to die. And I realized that no matter how hard I kept trying to die using that, I kept waking up, um, you know, and I would wake up in blood and puke and sometimes in jail, sometimes in the hospital, sometimes in a different state, but I kept waking up and I'm like, I cannot live life in this amount of pain anymore. Like, this is not, I can't do this. And I, I wanted to die and I couldn't. And that's what brought me back to AA. Tell me about an instance where you woke up in another state. Well, 
one time I had woke up in Iowa. Mm -hmm. I was in the back seat of a car with a guy and a girl that I had maybe met one time. And I don't remember anything. I don't remember what happened, how I got in a car. I don't remember how we got to Iowa. Um, I remember coming in and out. Once I woke up, we were already in Iowa and I remember coming in and out after that point. I had to get on a plane in Iowa and um, took a plane. You had money with you? I did not. I had a friend that that bought bought a ticket for me. Luckily, I had a purse with me, so I had an ID and I was able to go through an airport and get on a plane. I kind of swindled my way through life a lot. So I would get in, you know, in these predicaments that I put myself in and then I would blame everybody else. But I was so good at manipulating people that I could get people to do what I wanted. So when I would run out of money or didn't have a place to go or needed something, I was pretty good at getting it, even though I didn't didn't have it. Another when I got sober too and, and started cleaning up all of the messes that I had made with my life. Um, seriously sober, which I, I ha I'll have three years on Monday. That's oh, congratulations. After, thank you. That's after my one year uh, relapse. But this, the last three years has been um, like substantial sobriety where I'm actually doing the work, doing the things I'm supposed to, and my life has gotten so much better. And during that time, in the beginning, in the beginning, um, my my sponsor told me that I can't drive around without a license and insurance anymore. So that was one of the things that I had to um, that I had to get straightened out. So I went to the DMV and I knew it was going to be a, a shit show, for lack of a better word, that it was just going to be bad. So I go to the DMV. I'm like, what do I need to do to get my license? I hadn't had a license for years. I I don't even I don't even know if I've ever had one to be honest. Maybe maybe for a year when I was 18. Actually, yeah. I had a license for a year when I was 18 years old and then spent the, the next 10 years without one. So I go to the DMV and ask them what I need to do. And I had all of these tickets, all of these fines that I needed to go around to different counties and pay. A couple of them I had to go to court for. Um, I went and did, did all that. And so that was just in the state of Wisconsin and Minnesota. So I cleaned all that up. And then I went back to the DMV. They're like, go take care of all of these fines and then come back. So I go back, that took a couple of weeks. And then I go back to the DMV. I take the, the written test. I, I'm super excited thinking I'm walking out of there with a the license. And they bring me a piece of paper that says I have a bench warrant in New Mexico and Colorado. And they're like, we can't give you a license because you have bench warrants in these two states. And I'm like, I don't remember being in those two states at <laughs> all. I have, I have no idea. I don't remember being arrested. I don't know. I had no idea. So I had to call up. Um, I had to call up the counties that I had got these charges in. And it was the most, it was just so like, um, so awkward and, and embarrassing to be like, I have no idea what happened. You, you have to explain to me what I'm in trouble for, because I don't know. I don't remember. And that's how much of my using was. And I used so heavily and for so long and so consistently that there's like chunks of time that have just gone missing from my memory. And I have no idea. And in the 
charge. I had to go to court. Luckily, this was also the beginning of COVID. So I didn't have to get on a plane and, and go to New Mexico or Colorado. Everything was just starting um, to come up in, in Zoom land. So I went to court in both of these states. I got put on probation in both states. I was still on probation in Minnesota. So the first eight months of my sobriety, I was on probation in three different states. <laughs> oh, yeah. Doing, yeah, it was just just a mess. But I and I don't remember in New Mexico, I was arrested for an assault. Um, I have absolutely no idea what happened. And and during the court hearing, the judge had asked me to describe what happened. And I had to say, I have no idea. I don't I don't even remember being in New Mexico at all whatsoever. And the charges were from two different years. So the charge in Colorado was 2017. The charge in New Mexico was 2018. And I don't remember Chicago was or Colorado was uh, disorderly conduct and reckless driving. So also have have no idea, no idea what happened there. But I had to plead guilty to these crimes that I was arrested for and have absolutely no memory of it's a common thing for you to go around the country when you're drunk. Yeah. Loaded, having no idea what's going on. Oh, my own. And I never really had an address. I would um, I would get a different ID in different states so that if the police were looking for me, they couldn't track me down. I wouldn't stay at one place. I'd stay somewhere for three months, and then I'd leave. And then I'd stay somewhere else for three months, and then I'd leave. So I never really got any mail. And I'm sure even if I would have got mail, I never would have opened it. But I had no idea. Like, I just lived my life so recklessly that, like, I had these bench warrants for years and no clue. (laughs) Yeah. So when did you realize when you first had a problem? Um... I I knew I had a problem before I even picked up because listening in at the meetings and knowing that that was what I was going to do was seek out drugs and alcohol. It's like my mission was to have, like, I knew that that wasn't healthy. So I never started using to be social or to fit in or anything like that. From day one, it was to be obliterated. And There wasn't a point in my using that I ever thought that I didn't have a problem. I never cared that it was a problem is how I describe it. So I knew that, you know, I I knew that I was powerless over drugs and alcohol. I knew that I couldn't stop. I knew that my life was entirely unmanageable and I I did not care. It, It was like I was okay with it for a long time until I couldn't die. And then, and then that's when I wanted to change. Couldn't think of a better reason to change. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I got sick of life um, the way it was. And I had, I mean, I would take off and just go and move. I would move States too. I would just move all around thinking like, Oh, if I live somewhere else, you know, then I would be able to, to stop using or then life would be better. And um, that never worked. The geographical change never worked. But when three years ago, I was living in Phoenix and I had just had my son and CPS had come 
to my hospital. I had a C-section and CPS had come to my hospital room um, because someone had made a report. And at, at this point, I was smoking weed on a medical marijuana program, in our, which is why I went to Phoenix. I'm like, well, I'll move to Phoenix because then I can smoke weed and not get in trouble. And maybe that'll be enough that I won't have to do hard drugs. So that was that was the plan. And I was pregnant. So I moved so that I could smoke weed and hopefully not do drugs while pregnant. And that was successful. I was smoking weed. Um, but because of my history and because I still didn't have custody of my daughter at that time, CPS came to my door and my hospital room door. And I was I had just come up from recovery, so I hadn't met my son yet. And they said um, they they came to just ask me questions. And I I lost it. I flipped out and I started throwing stuff. I flipped the table over in the room. Um, I was yelling at the lady. They came and handcuffed me to the bed and the CPS, obviously, after that um, dramatic breakdown was like, you're not, we're not going to let you be around your child. So they did a 14 day investigation where I wasn't able to be with my son for the first 14 days of his life. Um, they closed the case unsubstantiated. So I didn't actually, my son wasn't removed from my care, but I did have to leave, leave for the 14 days um, while that was going on. And that was like a wake up call was like, okay, I, and that's what I mean when like anger is, is just as big of a problem as the drugs and the alcohol were. Cause I couldn't control it at, you know, I couldn't control it and it was causing me as many problems as, as using was, I wasn't, I was using in the sense that I was smoking weed, but it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near what it was prior to that. Um, and I don't count that even though it's medical marijuana, I don't count that time. I count from the day I abstained from everything, but the anger, um, got me in, in just as much trouble. I mean, I had to leave my home. I had to sign my rights over temporarily to my son because I had an anger outburst. So, that was a really big wake up call that I needed help um, and that I couldn't, I couldn't continue life the way that it was. So after that investigation closed, and I was also in a, a terrible relationship at the time with my son's father, which was also the, the pattern, unhealthy relationships and drugs um, for my whole life. But I, um, my sponsor had, had texted me my very, my very first sponsor from River Falls, who I hadn't spoke to in maybe like a couple years. She had texted me randomly a couple weeks. Um, my son was about a month ago, month old. And she said, have you had enough yet? And I was like, yeah, I have like, I help, please help. And um, so she, her and all of these ladies from AA that I hadn't talked to or seen in several years they were like, let us know what you need. Like, come, come home, come back and we'll figure it out. So I grabbed my son and we had like one box of stuff. And, um, I drove from Phoenix back to river falls and they, it was crazy the way that it happened because I, um, anytime I was tired or like needed food, I didn't have any money. And these people from AA would be like, do you need a hotel from the night? Um, go to Papa John's, I'll call in a pizza order for you, things like that. So I didn't, I went the whole way. It's like 2000 miles with random people I don't know paying for hotel rooms and food. And I didn't ask, I didn't have to ask for anything. Like we were just taking care of the whole way. 
And when I got back, um, my friend said that we could stay with her for a few weeks until I figured out what to do. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have one last, you know, one last party. I'm going to go drink one, one last time. So the day that I got back, which was May 16th, 2019, I went to the liquor store. My other, some of my drinking friends were having a barbecue. So I went to the liquor store and I got five bottles of booze and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to drink hard tonight. And then tomorrow I'm going to go to a meeting and I'm going to be sober. So I went to the liquor store, they packaged it in a brown paper bag and I drove to my friend's house. I put the bag in the trunk and I opened the trunk to grab the bag and I picked the bag up and the bottom broke out and every single glass, they were all glass bottles and every single bottle dropped in the parking lot and smashed open every single one. And I was like, okay, God. I guess I'm not drinking today. And I turned around and I went to a meeting uh, with with my three-month-old baby. So, and I've been sober so since that day. You were actually going to a party with your baby? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Tell us about that kind of stuff. That used to happen a lot. <clears throat> um, yeah, not with my son. Um I got so when I I was sobered up when I, when my son was three months old, and that was the first time um, bringing him anywhere. Because in Phoenix, in Phoenix, I didn't I didn't party like that. But my with my daughter, I had my daughter when I was eighteen years old, and I had her for she was removed when she was four. So for four years of her life, she was taken to to not like not parties, but I would go pick up, uh, and she would be in the car. I would use and be passed out at home and she would be at home. She used to call when she was two years old. She knew how to use my phone and call my uncle to come pick her up, uh, because mommy was sleeping really. I was, um, I was sleeping, but I was unconscious or I would pass out in my own throw up. She called 911 one time, um, because I wasn't, I wasn't breathing. Her dad is also an addict and alcoholic, and she's had to call 911 on him, too, um, when she was four, shortly before she went to live with my sister. Um, so she, I mean, what C CPS removing her from my custody was 100% the right decision. I did not take care of, of my daughter um, in any capacity the way that she needed to be taken care of. And I've had to do a lot of forgiving for myself for those things um and also a lot of work with her i got custody of my daughter back in 2020 and it was the very first time that the state of wisconsin has ever overturned a chapter 54 guardianship never in the history of the state have they undone that guardianship because that guardianship is so significant um because i neglected her so bad and and did not take care of her it it's meant to be permanent um so it's, and it was the same judge, the same judge that I, I went to, to try and get her back the first time that told me that I would never have custody of her. Um, when I moved back from Phoenix, I decided that I was just going to accept it. You know, my daughter lives with my sister and she will for until she turns 18 years old and it's whatever, um, whatever interaction and relationship that I have with my daughter is, is at the mercy of my sister and my brother-in-law. And I, I had to accept that situation for what it was and learn how to, you know, be the best, 
mom that I could be while not having custody of her and having custody of my son and trying to navigate and figure out how to do that. But um, I did let it go, uh, you know, the situation. And I, and I was able to find peace in knowing that she was just loved and cared for and healthy and that it's my actions that caused the guardianship to be needed in the first place. And shortly after, like this radical acceptance, my sister called, and there was periods where I wasn't allowed to talk to her when I was when I was relapsing or using, I wasn't able to talk to my daughter or see her. I wasn't able to see her unsupervised for the first three years that she was there. And she was there for four years. So she was gone from 2016 to 2020. Um, but I was so in 20, I was I wasn't even one year sober yet. I was about nine months sober. And my sister called and she said um, that they were so proud of the way that I was changing my life around and the way that I was being an active member of recovery and cleaning up all of the messes that I had made in my life and that they wanted to go to court on my behalf to end the guardianship, that they would petition the court to end the guardianship so that Gia, my daughter, could come home. So... Um, so they did that. They filed a motion with the court. We all went to court. Um, it was a very long process. And I had a courtroom full of people on my behalf to say how much I had changed and, and how capable and able I would be to be a mom. And they came and investigated my apartment, uh, my life, I mean, everything very, uh, very intricately. And then they ruled, they ruled in the favor of the motion and the guardianship was terminated. And I got custody of my daughter and that had never happened in the state of Wisconsin. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, I caused a lot of damage and a lot of trauma in her life. Um, but we've, we've come a long way in terms of dealing with that and healing from that. Uh, she completed a very intense inpatient or not inpatient, but a very intense um, in-home therapy program uh, called CTSS, which is I actually don't know what it stands for, but it's called CTSS. And um, so we had three times a week, we would have people come into our home and work with her and um, so that she could learn how to regulate her emotions and process her emotions. And she's come a long way as a person. And um, shortly after I moved back, I had went to, the, uh, it's actually coming up, but it's called Go for State Roundup. It's a really big AA conference. And the one of the speakers at the conference was, um, talking about how she got custody of her daughter back and her daughter, you know, was a, a little, a little kid when, when she left. And then when she got custody back, she was a teenager and it was, uh, you think, you know, that it's going to be this big, happy reunion and it, and it's, it is, but it's not. And it's a lot of work and it's, you're two entirely different people than when you were separated. And, um, you know, they're put back in an environment that caused them significant harm so there's a lot that you have to do you can't just they can't they don't just come home and then life's great it's a it's a lot of work behind that how old your daughter now she's 10 she's 10 yep i'm sure everyone's happy to be in each other's lives yes yeah now it's the first year was rough, but now we're all on, uh, we're all at a really good spot. That's good. A lot of hard work. Yeah. A lot of discipline, I'm sure. So 
what are you doing nowadays with your life? What are your goals? What are your plans? My plan is to get through grad school. Um, so that'll start this summer um, to be a social worker. And then I want to be a social worker. I want to work with adolescents with drug and alcohol problems um, that are also experiencing some type of crisis, whether it be at home or school or with their identity. Um, kids who grew up like I did and, and being able to use my experience to help them through it. So that's what I want to do in terms of a career. Um, I work now. I, I, I've, I've always worked in healthcare since I completed the trade school, but um, I no longer work in the pharmacy. I work for a Be The Match, which is the National Marrow Donor Program. So I match bone marrow patients or bone marrow donors to patients who have a blood cancer or blood disorder. I really enjoy my job as it is now. I help do psychological assessments um, for my job, which is something that I also really enjoy. Um, and yeah, I'm super active in AA and NA. I sponsor women. I have a sponsor. I go to meetings. I go to three meetings a week. I have a home group. I'm very active in my home group. And I take meetings to a detox center once a week and meetings to a treatment center once a week. Um, so I'm very active in, in the recovery community today. But those are all the things that, that keep me sober. That's cool. Very cool. So my last question is, do you have any advice for people watching and listening? My advice to people watching and listening would be to get involved. Um, for me, my whole basis of my program is that I need to be connected to a higher power. And I do that by being connected to other people. So my life is 180% different than it was three years ago. And that's because of how involved I am in the program and how, how concentrated I am in doing the things that help me recover today. All right. Sounds good. So did you have anything else that you wanted to throw in there? That's it. No. So how, how do you feel? I feel good. I'm glad I was able to do this and hopefully someone gets something out of it that they needed to. Yeah, no, we'll be helping people that I hear from listeners all the time that, you know, a lot of them relate to the stories that they hear. But for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you heard and saw, go below, subscribe. Also, give us a like. Once you subscribe, you'll be able to see when we upload new videos and interviews. We have all different formats we're going to be recording in the future. Also, check us out on Reddit, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you go to the Facebook events tab, you'll see all the information for our nightly Zoom meetings. That's all I have for right now. So until next time.